superintendent of a large multi-district supervisor union in Vermont, um, and I'll sort of make the case that um, you know it's a really exciting time to be a student in education in Vermont. You know, I'm not sure it's so exciting to be an adult, um, other than to say, uh, you know, the old Chinese, the Chinese curse. You know, uh, the old Chinese curse made you live in interesting times. Uh, we got a lot of interesting stuff going on right now, but it's, I, I keep coming, my daughter's an eighth grader, and I keep coming back, and it's a really exciting time to be here. Um, one of the things we did as an organization at one point, I think going back to, I want to say 2009, uh, as a leadership team, is to come to sort of the consensus that uh, education needs to change. And uh, we did that, I think, came to that consensus uh, by going to Alan November's BLC conference. If they were his chance to go to that, I encourage you. We kind of take the team there every other year building learning communities it's in Boston. Uh, of course, we've lost a lot of our title money that we paid for that, but um, it's a great opportunity to really get sort of integrated and tap into what is a, a worldwide revolution of what's going on in the station. Um, but I, one of the things we did as well is go went back and looked at the Vermont educational tradition, which is this progressive tradition that goes back to John Dewey, um, but this idea that we've always had in Vermont that uh, education is about the individual learner. And this is a great piece. You can click that and go out here. Anyone heard of this? The Vermont Design for Education? Yeah. yeah it's actually, the founder of the school that my kids go to. Yeah. That's right. You're down in Chester, uh, right? Yeah. So this goes back. Uh, there was a secretary of education back then who kind of had a community conversation. Go back and read that. It's still very much relevant today. Inspired a lot of people to come from all around the United States to come teach in Vermont. Um, but here, you know, here's some little quotes about, you know, from that piece. And I would argue they're still very much relevant today. So, um, you know, one of the things we did going to like sort of the BLC kind of activities to understand what the implications of technology in education are, but at the same time to sort of do that, that connection to our Vermont tradition uh, with our small schools and being able to teach the individual. But we make, make the argument and I would say also assume the responsibility that uh, now we have the tools to actually do this for the first time. And this is, this is unique, I would say, in the history of Vermont. We actually have the tools to manage personal learning to actually do it. Um, so we have a responsibility to try to do it. Uh, one of the things you have to do when you start talking about these terms is actually start to define them. So I'm gonna walk you through how we define it as an organization. Um, you know, what is personalized learning? And uh, we really struggled uh, to, to come up with these definitions largely because of the, excuse me, um, the federal policy context today in the United States is so poisonous in education. So we, we struggled, you know, when Arnie Duncan started talking about personalized learning, we're like, wait a minute, that isn't what we mean by personalized learning, so let's right. talk about that, you know? So this first one is critical, and this, this goes back to, I would say, the, the Vermont Design for Education, this idea that personalized learning means starting with the students' aspirations, that's the cornerstone. It's not about what industry wants kids to be able to do, career readiness, not to say career readiness is not inconsistent with aspirations, but the cornerstone is aspirations. You know, what each of us are only on this planet once with a unique combination of skills and attributes. What do you want to do with your life? You know, part of the conversation on education is how to make people self-fulfilled. So starting with that is a cornerstone. Um, designing learning activities irrespective of grade levels and so forth and so on. There's a whole new technologies and assessment that are really intriguing. So how can we manage the data piece? Because that, that's one of the things that technology brings to the table. Um, May just make the, I think the case, uh, this gentleman, David Weinberg, if you ever get a chance to read this book, Too Big to Know, he's a professor of internet philosophy at Harvard. 
great book. Very, you know, it's one of these kind of books that's not too big, but man, one paragraph is like, oh my God, you know. Uh, makes the, he makes the argument that the structure of knowledge has already changed. The structure of education has already changed. What we're dealing with now is the structure of schooling. And, and it's interesting to start thinking about the dichotomy between education and schooling. Because education is, is, is changed, he would argue, but now we're dealing with that. So this is where you know, we left. So I was interested also in defining um, this issue of school transformation. Uh, I was one of the few refugees left in the original school transformation conversation. We had a retreat in Vermont maybe eight years ago. We went to Grafton in and struggled with that. We spent two days there. One thing we agreed on when we left is we couldn't agree on what the word of this thing was. We couldn't even agree on the word transformation. So, um, but we define it as an organization as rapidly changing the structure of schooling the first <coughs> So in there is shifting the role of the teacher. Um, but this, this idea of rapid change in, in embracing that as an organization is sort of what we're talking about in terms of transformation. We feel as responsible as educators that schooling needs to change very quickly in order to continue to be relevant to meet those personal aspirations of kids because the mission of schooling is still very, very much important to our civic success. So we have an urgency to this work. Um, so, uh, you know, from a logic model, what that leads us to do is embrace, uh, as a management strategy or as a leadership strategy, this concept of innovation. If you need to change structures very rapidly, innovation is the, the, the good approach. The challenge with that, as you know, um, when you're dealing with, as a public entity, uh, we can't say to parents, hey, we're going to go innovate for four years, and uh, your kid's going to go along for the ride. So we have to kind of do it very responsibly. Uh, so we have to create some structures um, that ensure we do that responsibly. So this idea that innovation is a good strategy when the path forward is complex and not clear. Innovation is a good strategy when rapid change is necessary. Innovation is not always the most appropriate management strategy. I mean, I'm hoping someday in my career I don't have to use innovation every day. I always want to be a superintendent where you come in and take the temperature of the organization, do some paperwork, and walk around and say hi to kids. Right now, we're engaged in significant change, if you didn't know that. So a lot of times, I present to superintendents. And I, this is what I tell new superintendents. If you didn't know what you just signed up for, you are leading in an era of significant change. And this is what you need to do as a leader. You've got to be prepared to manage this. Um, but I don't, you know, there's a lot of talk about, it. well, innovation is always great. I don't, you know, as an organization, at some point, I'd love not to be doing a lot of it. I think, I think at some point the organization, that's one of the challenges, always needs to have some foot in innovation. Uh, but this idea of focusing um, the organizational system, and that's really, you know, this is the conclusion of my presentation essentially. Everything else is frosting on the cake, and I'll talk about specifics. But if you can get a sense of what we've done as a multi-district supervisor with all the different schools and all the different players, is we've sort of, a core of us anyways, initially, have come to agreement, oh man, I forgot to turn that off. Phew, sorry about that. Um, I'm just going to shut this up. Started with a core group of folks coming to the agreement that we had the sense of responsibility that we urgently had to change the, sense of the, the structure of school. And then we did some community activities, built the consensus, I think, among the staff that this really needed to happen. It's an ongoing thing that we have to always talk about and revisit why we're doing this. But the idea then is to design a system that puts pressure on the organization to change. But we do that to ourselves. We're going into it saying, we are going to embrace a system that's going to put, if we do this correctly, if we design this correctly, I took this from a science textbook, by the way. It's like going to blow up the atom or something. You know? <laughs> if, we, if we do this successfully, it's going to change the organization very quickly. 
you know? So what are those strategies that are gonna do that? So when our teachers would say, God, you know, we feel like we're under a lot of pressure, I said, yeah, remember we designed this, so you'd be under a lot of pressure, you know? Because we wanna do this, so we, we take responsibility for that. So here's, here's what this, our systems innovation plan looks like. Um, and this, the presentation from there goes out into all these different topics. There's about seven bullets, and you can, any one of these that you're more interested in, you can feel free to explore. One is to engage the communities and to uh, capture uh, their interest in the future of teaching and learning, and particularly education for kids, and put that into board policy. And create um, sort of a consensus in the community that this is about what, what needs to happen. There's a process, the script, how we did that, um, how, what the school, the policies look like, all that's out those links. Uh, next, next one uh, was to engage in, in, I call him an outside expert, uh, gentleman David Silverdale from Maine. Maine, as you know, has had the, probably the longest experience with one-to-one -one laptops in the country. This guy's been the lead investigator uh, on that from a, from a research standpoint. So that this was a very strategic, uh, on a couple levels. One is, the, I say, the outside expert. You know, I can stand up with community members and school board members and talk about this all the time, but man, they don't listen to me. I bring in an outside expert and they're like, oh, Dr. Silverdale, what's he saying? You know, so um, that was that was important because we need political cover to do this work. Um, also, though, you know, the content value of this is he's designed a system by which we evaluate where we are as an organization in terms of making that shift, and it helps us helps us focus our professional development um, and our intervention on moving people uh, forward. And I'll show you some of that in a minute. Um, the central core of this is this idea of open sourcing, the develop, I call the development cycle, instead of relying on sort of top-down, um, and I'll explain that, but you know, if you think about standards-based reform as a methodology of improving instruction, it's kind of outdated. If you think, how long does it take us to develop standards? Well, Common Core was developed on a weekend. That's not a good yeah. example. But, <laughs> so was, uh, and Common Core is great. Don't get me wrong. But you know, Vermont. You know, the Vermont conversation on the Vermont standards. What took 20 years? No, three, maybe three years or so. And then we had the GLEs. It takes some time, right? Does anyone have a school that's fully implemented the Vermont standards? Right. So you know, so this idea that we're going to have standards and take a couple of years to develop. That's going to trickle down ultimately to have perfectly aligned curriculum to the standards, and then our students are going to be standardized, and we're going to be learning at higher levels. I mean, it's crazy. So, the, the counter to that is this idea of building it from an open source uh, approach. Um, I'm an open source software guy, so one of the things I've brought into this is sort of an understanding of that from a systems organization standpoint. Um, one of the key uh, send you out, there's a link out to this gentleman, uh, David Hargreaves from the, uh, from the University of Arizona, UK somewhere, he's a Cambridge fellow at some point. Um, he's got a seminal paper called Education Epidemic, if you get a chance to read that. He's the first the first thing I ever read where a guy matched sort of open source system design uh, in education. Uh, we use an assessment, so we're, you know, once again, another sort of political strategy, but also to leverage some of the new technologies in assessment, this idea of using NWA map, it's a, did anyone use NWA map? Yeah, it's been around for a long time. It's equal increment scale. Um, we can take that data and leverage it into our PLT conversation. And also, we do it at a, a sort of a board level as well. Um, we created an organizational structure called an instructional leadership team. So we take our best teachers, put them together, and put them into a developmental sort of design team. They're sort of the quality control over it. When we draw the distinction uh, with them that they're, they're not involved in implementation. So, 
one of the things I think we all need to take a lesson from sort of the, the industry approach on this is we need to create a culture of innovation or organization. We have to create some formal structures where innovation can be occurring and not to weigh that structure down with the challenges of implementation. So that the implementation piece goes somewhere else, goes to the principles and we say, okay, how can we do all these things? But these guys spend the time doing the R&D, the research. You know, if we send them out and say, all right, what's the, what's the best way to do a PLP, you know, as an example. They go out and research that, put it together, and then we try to implement it. Standards-based curricula, very important. Um, but, you know, when I was talking, we see standards as a means of tagging resources, not necessarily limiting what's being taught. I'm gonna, you know, if you're interested in ends, you can go through this step. Um, the silver nail work is kind of interesting. Uh, this evaluation piece of the outside expert, one of the first things we had to do was develop a logic model. And we were, uh, our district was one of 20 districts in the National School Reform Initiative, and all of them had this sort of logic model concept that mm -hmm. you, you need to know what you're trying to do, right? right. So uh, you start here, this is what we're trying to do. These are the outcomes, and if you can read that, uh, organiz organizational st structure supports students owning their learning. That's how we, you know, personalization became such a loaded word. We had to go even further and say, this is really what we need. We want students to own their learning. Second thing is we want to create this sort of, uh, I call lateral innovation network, which comes from Hargrave's work, this idea of building sort of open sourcing the development model among teachers. So that's the outputs, you know, here are the student outcomes. Here, here are the places that we do the work and, um, kind of cut off there. The top piece is a chunk on infrastructure. You know, we had to have connectivity and the tools in place. But these two bullets here are the biggies. You know, shifting the role of teachers to be designers and managers of student learning, mm -hmm. strategies, you know, how we use the learning management system, how we use NWA data, and then uh, this idea of documenting student learning through ePortfolio. So one of the things Hargreaves, this guy from the UK, talks about is engaging in high leverage activity. So we when we're challenged once again with the idea of moving our organization very quickly, we have to be very selective in what we're going to do. When we started thinking about that, this concept of e-portfolio emerged constantly and constantly as a high leverage activity, meaning if people engage in how to do this, it's more likely to shift students owning their learning. It's gonna have to sort of like this pebble, dropping the pebble in the water thing. People are engaged in that thinking, how to do it, actually trying to implement it. It's gonna have a lot of effect in the organization. So um, just to give you a sense of what that started to look like, we have this instructional leadership team, that quality control group. They went on a, a spent a year taking um, you know, a course on how to do e-portfolios. They spent a year developing personal learning plans, came back with what they thought was the best model. We then took it out into a structure in the organization where we have student-led conferences. The teachers actually hated it. They hated the model. We got the feedback on this sort of open sourcing idea. We gathered all their feedback. We took it back for a second round two months later, or about three months later when the second round of, of student-led conferences. By the second time we did it, we had a very finished, polished draft of what a PLP is in our organization. And that's in here somewhere. You can see it. So, you know, this, it's amazing how quick you can do some things uh, once, you, once you get the structures in place. So yet, in terms of his work, uh, create a logic model and then actually creating a tool by which we can measure that. So we give the teachers a survey every year. Um, you can see, you can actually link out and go that. And you know, there's this, there's this uh, research, uh, Rogers from Industry on Innovation Organizations. He's done research across lots of different kinds of organizations. So the survey, this is what Silvernail does for us, he cranks out this data, 
and he tells us, all right, here's where people are. Rogers, these are terms from Rogers. You have innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, and laggards. So we do this in a very overt way. You know, teachers all participate in a survey once a year. The data comes back to a big board report. We talk about it. And then we, as a management team, sort of as a uh, formative assessment, if you will, we look at that and say, all right, what does this mean? The teachers look at it and say, all right, what does it mean? But what you try to do is to, you know, you kind of write off the laggards and you kind of write off the innovators, these people that are always going to be doing great things. And we focus on these guys in the middle. You know, what do we need to do to shift, you know, the early adopters into your own majority? You know, we want to, these guys tend to, according to Rogers, tend to wait to see how other people are doing it. You know, and what moves them the most is when they see their peers doing it. So how do we, how do we get that modeled out? How do we demonstrate, you know, people who are doing it well, how do we get them to bring the peers along? So that's, that's the kind of thing you learn from that. Um, this is hard reads again. It's great. Great piece. Talked about this idea of a development model, developing curriculum. I don't know why we do this there. I mean, in that regard, uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, we use a learning management system to sort of the infrastructure that connects all the teachers together in terms of that development. We're certainly interested in um, working with other districts that might have to do that. So this was our big aha uh, after doing this. And when you start talking about personalizing learning, you can't really do personalized learning unless you have all the educators connected in a common infrastructure of innovation and open. Because the challenge of personalization is so great from a structural standpoint. You know, you're, and I know uh, there's different thinking about differentiation versus personalization, but when you start looking at what's, what's in front of you in terms of students today and the tools you have as teachers, it's, it's a daunting task to try to think you're gonna do this on your own or even do it on your own as a school. So one of the things we, we talk about is a paradigm shift of the artisan teacher, you know, this idea, you know, my wife's a kindergarten teacher, she works alone at night crafting these wonderful plans, she's a 25 year teacher, I mean, she creates beautiful things, but she works in isolation, you know? This idea of, of an innovation network is as a network group of people, you know, all the kindergartner teachers in the district working together, sharing resources, grabbing stuff from an eighth grade teacher, having that all tagged so the resources can flow into parts and pieces, and they can put stuff together for individual kids as it, as it comes before them. So you think about Vermont, you know, Vermont has a lot of artisan teachers, and a lot of our school improvement efforts and transformation efforts are designed on creating more artisan teachers, you know? If we can take 12 people, we'll turn them into artisan teachers. Um, and then we have these artisan little schools, these wonderful little valleys, you know, working in total isolation. You know, we were a supervisor union where schools largely worked in isolation. So how do you, how do you attack those issues? And that's, that's sort of the challenge of doing this system work. Um, it's kind of a diagram of how we use learning management system. Uh, let's get through that, this idea of authentic use. To give you an example of some of the data, this is a, from NWA Map. This is a, a graph of, uh, this is, I think, was in Dorset School, second graders. How many students, um, you know, the map is an equal increment scale, sort of like looking at a ruler can go all the way through adulthood. And then we do a normalization study with it, you know, on grade level. So these are second graders reading complex texts. Uh, you've got one kindergartner, one reading at the kindergarten level, two reading at the first grade level, five reading at the second grade level, eight reading at the third grade level, two reading at the fourth grade, so forth, ninth and eleventh. Okay? So you look at that and you say, all right, what is, is that cool? 
Well, if you look at it from a standards methodology, here's what you walk away with. Well, we got 60% proficient, with, and this is sort of at the beginning of the year. You know, these kids are already proficient with distinction, 25 are proficient, 10 are below, five are, you know. So what does that really tell you? Well, it, from a personalization, it tells us there's only 25% of the kids in that room that are ready for a standards-based second grade curriculum. Everyone else in the room needs something else, whether it's on the high end or low end. There's only, there's only a small group of kids that are, you know, if you're talking about doing standards-based curriculum. So the, uh, the point of the, the data now is we get, you know, we can do lots of things with the data. Uh, we talk about using the data from an efficiency perspective. We need data, one assessment, and that's why we focus on NWMF. One assessment can do multiple things for us in the organization. That's an efficient assessment. Form it, it has to provide the form of data to teachers. We have to use it reliably to evaluate our programs, and then we need to provide assurance to board members and community members that our ends are being achieved. Um, But this, you know, this idea of standards, I don't want to walk away with the impression that I don't know. You know, standards are really critical. Uh, the Common Core is a really critical piece from a design standpoint because it's a common language. But, you know, going into that design, when you're thinking about designing systems, you have to think about using lots of different kinds of standards, you know? I want to use Finland standards. I want to use Singapore standards. I want to use the Common Core. I want to use the Vermont standards. It's, all it is is a tagging scheme to connect what should be an explosion of learning resources for kids. Unfortunately, you know, the political debate on this is that it's a narrowing. Um, yeah, this idea that we're in an era of expansive curriculum for kids. You know, as you know, kids can learn all kinds of stuff in schools. What's happening around the country right now in the United States, however, is just the opposite. You know, we're, we're getting rid of things in the name of standardization. Uh, you can look at our work. I described sort of the PLP aspect, how that was two years of painful work, and then the teachers ate it up and threw it out. But then we chewed back on it and got it polished up. So you can do this sort of rapid development approach when everyone's connected. Now we're working on the e-portfolio. So I'm gonna wrap up here and then we'll have a conversation. Uh, why innovation now? You know, why the urgency? I think schooling needs to change. Uh, we're at this tremendous historic opportunity, I think, because we now have the tools to do what we've always wanted to do in Vermont. Um, we have these systems though that are kind of clunky and we've got to figure out how to do that. Um, we are increasingly, our governance conversation is about, you know, on the one hand, board members, community members are like, we get it, we understand personalization. I thought you I thought you started that, isn't it done now? Like this was like last spring, you talked about it, this is gonna only take four months, right? And then the teachers on the other hand are like, oh my God, you know, if he throws another thing at us, we're gonna be crazy, you know? So it's interesting to kind of sit in the middle as a leader and say, you've got people in the trenches saying, this stuff's making a spin, and then you have people on the outside going, come on, you know, what's, what's, <laughs> what's going on? But that's really where the, the source of a lot of the power to change is in that governance piece, is engaging your communities. And I think one of the things we've learned, particularly um, in a political context today, is that accountability, all those sorts of things should be pointed back to your local community, not up the food chain. You know, you gotta have a conversation in the community about why schooling needs to change. Um, it's great when you're developing a plan if you can use multiple strategies to meet lots of different needs. So we use NWE Map, it informs our PLP, uh, it informs uh, the governance connection. Um, and then this constant need to communicate with folks and to revisit why we're doing this. You know, um, you know, like I said, we went to BLC in 09. Every other year we go back and do that. We're running an institute now for every single teacher. It's a full day on personalized learning, tapping into sort of thinking from around the world. So you constantly have to revisit that. Um, is there time to do this in the system? 
yes. The assumption is you'd stop doing some of the other things. Um, John Maynard King. Uh, why don't I stop there? I'm going to hand this out to you. You're welcome to take one of these. I think I have enough for everyone. This is an example of, you know, how we um, communicate. I want you to say something. <laughs> This is a uh, brochure that goes home to everyone in the community. Um, why don't I stop there and we can chat about oh, yeah. these topics. I'll use this as a sort of talking point. This brochure summarizes everything that's in the presentation. But this is designed for parents, it's designed for stakeholders in the community, it's designed for teachers. You know, we use this as sort of a piece of curriculum, if you will, as we're, we're going about clarifying what's personal. Now what we, we work at is, you know, does everyone understand why we're doing this? But then 
getting at very explicit instructional concepts like sharing. You know, adults, the teachers don't really share that well. It's not intuitive, you know? So you're like, you know, we bring our best teachers in and they'd be like, I don't, I don't really want to share my thing. And you look at it, it's like fantastic. I mean, this person's a rock star. We're like, I don't know if it's good enough to share with someone. I'm like, you know, it's good enough. Share it. So put it in the library. You know, so you got to have that function to do that. Yes, sir. So did other school boards come on, or other school districts come on board with you? We have had more interest now with, I would say, working in parallel, you know? So we have several SUs that are, we've had that conversation, but I think, you know, it's not, um, we're part of a larger conversation. I mean, this work, like I said, was representative national work, but this is ongoing everywhere. So the, I think what I try to present to you <coughs> is um, an example of what it looks like in a multi-district Vermont supervisor union, where authority and power are sometimes negotiated, sometimes cajoled. Um, but the idea that you have a central, like this is this is the work. You know, it's really not about anything else. You know, I feel like I said when I talk to new superintendents, it's not about how am I going to, you know, comply with that back. You know, this is this is the, the crisis. This is the piece of work you need to be prepared to lead. You know, and here are some strategies that you're going to probably have some. You're going to have some element of this. You're going to have to do that community engagement piece. You know, and we found our communities love it. I mean, people, parents are anxious for a conversation about the future possibilities of education. You know, when we we do the PLP work, you know, when you talk to a kindergarten parent, where are the hopes and dreams of your kids? They love that. You know, we're capturing that formally. In a so we can look at that. When you ask an eighth grade parent, what do you what are your hopes and dreams? I want them out of the house. I want them <laughs> <laughs> somewhere along the line. Kindergarten parents are like, oh, you know. Eighth graders are like, oh, geez, you know. Um, so it's interesting to sort of document that. But the idea with that is that you know, if you think about the PLP and that cornerstone being the aspirations, it's not to say, well, whatever Johnny wants to do, we'll teach. You know, it's to say that's a cornerstone. You know, what do you want to do? The teacher's disposition is, oh. I represent this whole network of professional education content. You know, we have some things that humanity has decided you need to know. You know, over the human experience of thousands of years, we've got some stuff you might, you know, might be interested in. <laughs> but we got to intersect that with what you want. And by the way, our community has some expectation that what you learn and do must make a positive contribution for improving future lives. So that's sort of the third triangle is that civic responsibility. So that's the structure. And you can read about that stuff. Yeah, um, you mentioned that you use the map data to yeah. inform working your PLPs. Can you talk a little more specifically about that? Yeah, so if you're familiar with map, um, on a formative end, there's a lot of reporting that comes out of it in the sequence of people learn increment scale. So students get a lot of performance information individually. It's like, well, here's what do I need to do next? And that's part of the PLP conversation. What what academic goals are you going to work on? Mm -hmm. So. Um, I'm not going to bring it back up, but we have, in our PLP, we take uh, a structure that comes from the board ends policies. Our board ends policy, uh, if you're on, it's in here, let's hope you talk to this. Uh, if you go to page, what's page four? You know, this is the result of the engagement, formal engagement process with diverse communities. And pretty much, if you, you shouldn't be surprised that people pretty much want the same things for kids regardless of community, and you can put those things into three categories. One, core academics, this idea that there's the content. Secondly, this dispositions towards learning, and then lastly, the civic ethics. So when I was just talking about PLP, that's, it's so ingrained, it comes from policy, but inside the PLP, those are the structures we have the kids go through. Inside that core academic, that's where the NWAF map data can be used. Do you put it in? Yeah, we have kids say, I want to get, you know, 10 more points on this area of math, that's what I want to do. That's my, my I want to get a 142 next time. 
Yeah, so it can be used there. It's, you know, the challenge here is to use it responsibly, I think, and not to say that's all what it's about. But it's a tool that's available. Yes? Could you describe how your learning environments are changing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a good question. I think, you know, that's probably something I'm thinking in my head we should be documenting that better. Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of change going on. I think, you know, we've, a lot of what I'm representing today from a systems approach, it wasn't like we designed this looking at it all and saying, here's what we'll do. It sort of evolved. And it evolved certainly with our experience with Google Apps. It evolved with our experience with one-to-one -one computing, personal computing devices. Uh, so those things have had a significant influence on a learning environment. I would say that K through four probably pretty much look the same as they've always, which is probably what five and eight should look more like, you know, um, in terms of learning stations and so forth. Uh, we, we still, uh, there's a mix of things going on. I think it's very fluid. And I think that's that's a conversation, I think a very cool conversation to have in small elementary schools is if you buy into the idea of personalized learning irrespective of assigned grade levels, what can we do with this space? And we have examples. Uh, where we run kids through the same process, I should say, when we were building ends. You know, we asked community members what their hopes, you know, we asked the kids the same thing. We brought a group of kids together. And what we do is we show them videos of innovative learning spaces around the, around the world, you know. So we show them, uh, you know, some charter school environment where they can start from scratch and say, look, here's here's what we'll have. So we, we look at those spaces, and uh, I think it's it's going to be interesting. But I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of shift yet formally in how, that, how that's going to play out. Uh, we have activities going on. I think we have a lot of project-based things. When I get back tomorrow, um, we have, uh, my office is right next to our local cable television community access station. We have kids who've been down there every other week working on a current events TV show that they're doing. So they're down there getting ready to film that. So I'll walk over and watch them uh, do a debate on terrorism or something. You know? <laughs> so there's a lot of stuff going on. But uh, I would say a lot of it, increasingly the LMS has pushed things online too. So there's, uh, I had a teacher once presenting to a school board on how she uses the LMS as an English teacher. Right in the middle of the presentation, four kids came online. Couldn't have rehearsed it better. <coughs> Mrs. Selmstall, how do you, you know, what's kind of there? Kind of, you know, it was just like, she's, and she's sort of been around for a long time. She managed it quite well. She's like, I'll get back to you in a minute. I'm talking to the school board, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, couldn't, couldn't have sold it better. But, yeah, I don't want to answer your question. To, to end, uh, yeah. that gentleman in the back, I wanted to join with Jan Dan. I got a, had a presentation by him um, about two years ago now. And uh, I realized that we didn't have the infrastructure to even yeah. go forward. Yeah, um, I needed to work on my fiber network. I'm the, yeah. the tech director for the Rutland Central Supervisory Union. So we're a neighbor. We could have had like 1,200 kids. And I would have signed up overnight. And then we run into problems like our Google domains couldn't, couldn't right. come together. Or if I went into with Haiku, we couldn't share those lessons. I would love to have my 50 you right. know, innovative teachers throw lessons to you take your lessons, things like that. So I think the pressure really needs to be on uh, wherever you, you can assert the pressure that uh, we do need to do more sharing inter-district. I think that's that's something that's going to break very soon. Yeah. Um, and, and somebody's going to figure out how to do it. Right. And, and we've, we've learned yes. that, you know, when you're evaluating different LMSs, the social nature of that is critical to pay attention to. A lot of systems just aren't that social, you know? And I use VE2 as an example. VE2 is a non-social platform, so we don't we don't need yet another website where you can go put lesson plans. That's not what we're talking about. 
but if it's the if it's an ecosystem where that's also where you're interacting with kids, that's where you're delivering curriculum, and you also on the back end have this ability to share, then you're making it. That's the idea of authentic use. You know, people, you know, from an analytics standpoint, they often use Amazon.com as an example. Like Amazon.com, you know, you buy some stuff there. Next time you go there, guess what? They've got some ads coming at you. That's all in one system. Amazon doesn't send their data to some other platform for analysis, right? It's all embedded. So the LMS can be the center point of that. And I think we are seeing a lot of improvement in the LMS market and different people are starting to acknowledge that that's really going to be the infrastructure at one level in the organization. You know, how do we connect to SUs? We don't, I think we don't need to have the same LMS, but we need to have the ability to share and we have to agree on how we're going to do that. It's like having a common hashtag, right? So we've got bt.ed for this conference. We have BT Fest 2014, you know, Vermonters, everyone's got to have their own hashtag, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Now we have one hashtag per kid in the state, you know. You know, so we've got to think more intentionally about how does, what does that make you feel like? You know, if you're, are you losing control if you share a hashtag with someone? You know, we have SUs in the state that have more than one Google Apps domain. What the hell's up? <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't communicate with the other school in your own organization natively, right? Their directory information doesn't pop up. I mean, how do you do that, right? So we've got to think about that as a state. I'm, I'm very optimistic about Vermont, honestly, because I think if our little valleys have protected us from this other stuff. But I think what we need to do is tap back into that historic, you know, sort of tradition of progressive education and come to the realization this is the moral imperative of what we need to do with kids. Organization is a huge challenge, you know. What I've described to you today is incredibly painful, messy stuff. Don't, I don't want you to walk away thinking, well, here's the plan. This is very painful, very painful. But I think everyone understands what they're engaged in. And, you know, but we, get, you know, we feel pressure. And by design, we're trying to capture that pressure and make it happen. Yes? I'm wondering if and how this could connect to the world of special education. Yeah. You know, I know it's one of the goals and yeah. Kind of special educators love this stuff. Yeah, I mean, they, this is their native stuff. So they love to be able, so for instance, in the LMS, if we can create special educators that the ability to shadow teachers, shadow kids, they can see where the kids are, they can see the work, they can see everything happening. So they can, and they can jump in and help kids do that. Um, so I think, yeah, there's huge potential for, um, you know, we'll put my superintendent hat on from a, a cost perspective. If you think of all the resources we spend on remediation, I'll put special in that category, what makes that a very challenging process is we don't have a clear articulation or a transparent articulation of the learning process. The LMS starts to allow us to do that. Um, but it also, once again, on the aspirational aspect, I mean, that's that's foundation of an IEP. What are your hopes and dreams, right? So, I mean, that's important, important to acknowledge the power of that aspirational piece to capture that and use it as a design process. And we struggle with teachers on that, too. I think we all struggle with that. You know, because your inclination is, I'm the professional, I have some stuff I'm going to do. So what am I supposed to do with the fact you want to be, Johnny wants to be Superman as a kindergartner. I should tell him that's wrong. No, you work with that, right? <coughs> Superman needs to read. Right? <laughs> 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 but, it's, but it's interesting to watch teachers who naturally get that. You know, like, yeah, this is great. And others are like, that's, that's unacceptable. You need to have different yeah. aspirations. You know, and we get both reactions from teachers. It's not good or bad. I mean, one is clearly bad. <laughs> but we, we have to cultivate that among teachers. Like your natural inclination, your your emotional response should be, that's wonderful, you want to be Superman. Let me tell you about math. Okay, Superman needs to, you know, you can go lots of different ways with that. But just to shut it off and say, you're wrong, your aspirations are wrong, unfortunately, that's the disposition of a lot of our organizations. That's wrong. 
they were tuning a lot of kids out because of that. So. But, so. Yes, sir. Purpose of ePortfolio. ePortfolio. Yeah, so uh, a couple things going on there. As I said, we identified it as a high leverage activity. Uh, this guy, Hargreaves, I encourage you to go read that. I have a link to him. Uh, it's called Education Epidemic. But he talks about sort of redefining what is best practice, this concept. Um, in education, typically best practice is uh, something that came out of a laboratory experiment, you know. Usually in Vermont, it's something that came to the laboratory experiment that's very cumbersome to do. Like we have to send you, my superintendent had, send you for four years of training and only one person in the right, when the moon's in the correct alignment, can actually <laughs> get results for kids. Hargreaves yeah. uh, would redefine that and say, first thing is it has to be something from research that works. But secondly, it has to have a high transferability. You know, it has to be easy to spread. So, you know, it doesn't do us any good if, if an approach is cumbersome and can't be spread very rapidly across the organization. But then the other concept is this idea of high leverage, that you know, the activity must, for a relatively small input on the front end, have the potential to have a significant input on the other end. So it doesn't do us any good to you know, have a teacher work one-on-one -on -one with a kid for an hour to get incremental gains. You know, we need to have more efficient responses. He calls it high leverage. So it's sort of that redefinition of, of uh, best practice. So ePortfolio, there's a lot of research on ePortfolio, or portfolios, period, how they can shift the sort of the, the cognitive development of kids and the, the pedagogical approach of the teacher just by engaging that process and capturing formally, you know, the student's feedback and, you know, figuring out how to do that. So we looked at ePortfolio as sort of a, a high leverage activity, according to Hargreaves, that would shift students' own learning more rapidly than some other things. Also, I would say relatively easy to do. Um, of course, it's taken us four years and we still don't have it done. But we use PLPs as a table of contents of the ePortfolio. That's the design. So we're in the process of rolling that out now. When we bought an LMS, this was one of the decision makings, was to say our LMS must have the ability to do ePortfolios. So, you know, one of the things I would think in Vermont, this would be, you know, we don't have to have the same LMS, but wouldn't it be great to have a statewide ePortfolio platform where we could develop rubrics together, we could develop, and then you could take that back in any structure you want. You know, it's like with PLP, why are we doing that in isolation, you know? And our state started to put some infrastructure for holding those conversations about what we do that. But ePortfolios, I think, are really significant. So the, the theory behind that is documenting student learning. There's new, with new technology, we have ways of doc, what's called documenting student learning to show, here's what, here's what I can do as a student. The student owns that. So there's an iterative process back and forth with the teacher and eventually gets sort of locked down um, and put into this thing that's like, that's my portfolio that shows I've learned. That's uh, your proficiency-based learning kind of document. So in this uh, LMS that you have, is there a way for the learner to reflect on their learning right. in that e-portfolio, both through different means, both orally or through video, yep. through yep. Um, recording. Right. And so writing. In, in Haiku, it's called sort of a Dropbox. They call it so. It, a student interacts with the teacher on an assignment. So whether it be orally or writing, there's sort of an iterative process back and forth. All of that can be calcified and put into the e-portfolio with a clickable button when it's done. This is my final product. Here's all <coughs> the discussion that went along with that. Now it's in the portfolio. Tag the standards. That's a theory. We haven't achieved it yet. Tied to that, is there a process or some part of this that allows for a student to reflect on not just a piece of work, but their learning and over time 
and how different parts were connected? You know, a kind of a larger reflection? Yeah, I mean, those are mm -hmm. good points. I don't want to I don't want to sell a system to you. I, just, I think it's these are conversations teachers in your organization should be having together. Oh no, I'm not yeah. asking necessarily even about the platform. It's right. more is there time in the day? Is there a structure right. for students to have ongoing reflection right. on a larger scale? Right. Um, I you know I don't know. Okay. I think the potential is there. I don't want to. Once again, we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's you know what we've started with the PLP aspect in our organization is pretty well developed. It is now embedded in the student-led conference part. So we've had a tradition of student-led conferences that predated PLPs. What we've done is interjected PLPs into that. But everyone's doing that. That was the biggest thing just for everyone to do that. The next step is then, as a design of is to take that into the portfolio. And we have the infrastructure in place, but the skills and dispositions for teachers to manage that, you know, that's, that's going to be a big chunk. But that's, we know where we're going, I think. I think there's consensus that's where we need to go. See, I mean, that's that's really, you know, where I think we could, once again, as a state, if people are farther along than that, that's a good place for us to start coming together and kind of fit together. Because I think the portfolios is really significant. Could be a significant activity that should take quicker than other things. Yes, sir. And what about the time you have to devote to training the teachers how to use these systems? What have you run into so far? Yeah, we don't. Um, we don't spend a lot of time on training. You know, we, I don't think we've ever done much formal training on Google Apps, for instance. We're not a good example of how to do that thoughtfully. Where we spend a lot of time uh, right now, we, we we have an institute. Every single teacher is spending a full day in a small, let's say, a group of 10, 10, 12 colleagues, understanding what is personalization. So where we do spend the time is getting into the sort of meta level and the motivational level of here's, you know, let's give you some time out of all this stuff to reflect on why, you know, what's important about having conversations about your portfolio. But they have it at a metal level. I mean, that's what we bring to the table as we're an organization. I don't, I don't think we have enough time in the day to do some of these things, but once again, the assumption is you can stop doing some other things. So, you know, we talk about NWA as a testing and assessment coming in. The idea is that you would stop doing PNOA. You know, PNOA is 45 minutes, one, one teacher, one on one. Yeah, let's let that go and play a favor of this. But, okay, I don't know where we are in time, but um, Perfect time. feel free to, uh, my contact information is up here. I'd love to.